throughout the store. Like Prego spaghetti sauce, $1.69. Advil 80 count for $8.97. And Tide laundry detergent, only $4.99. Just look for the Price Buster signs at any Kenny location or check out our weekly ads to see even more. Super low prices, super big savings. That makes all the difference. Only at Kenny Drugs. We are back. Let's uh, give a nice warm radio Vermont welcome this morning to Secretary William Cohen. He's the former U.S. Secretary of Defense and Chairman and CEO of the Cohen Group, and he's also the author of Collision. Thank you for joining us, uh, Mr. Cohen. Thank you for joining us. How are you this morning? Good to be with you. Fine, thank you. So, you know, I was fascinated looking back at your career. I don't know how many people can make this claim, but you were in Congress when Watergate and Iran-Contra happened. Right. <laughs> I was on the uh, House Judiciary Committee in 1973, and then I was in the Senate, of course, in uh, 1986-7. Wow. So tell me the difference between these two. Um, Well, one was uh, very clearly uh, an abuse of power um, undertaken by President Nixon, um, engaging in um, the payment of hush money, um, um, lying, uh, not only publicly, but uh, doing everything uh, in his power to cover up what had taken place. So the cover-up, the suborning of perjury, the payment of hush money, uh, the attempt to use government uh, agencies to uh, exact a punitive political um, uh, retaliation, um, those were all uh, considered to be certainly abuse of uh, presidential power. And um, with respect, so that was Watergate, um, and that's quite different than uh, Iran-Contra, where we had a, a foreign policy that was articulated as one thing and a private policy that was exactly the opposite. For example, the president said he'll never trade uh, weapons for hostages. Well, that's exactly what we were doing. But uh, the, the worst aspect of it was that we were selling weapons to Iran uh, at an inflated price, and that inflated price was then being deposited in a an account uh, to conduct uh, a campaign against uh, the, uh, the the so-called government at that time in Nicaragua, the Sandinistas. Yeah. So you had essentially what uh, Colonel uh, Oliver North called an off-the-shelf, standalone, self-sustaining capability. Well, that is outside the bounds of our Constitution. We're using. U.S. taxpayer assets to fund a covert program that no one knows anything about except a few people in the White House. So it was it was different in uh, the goal, uh, to be sure, uh, namely to get our hostages out. But nonetheless, it was done in a way that was completely unconstitutional. And uh, it, it wasn't as much of a, a an abuse that we saw during the Nixon years where uh, you had, you know, a, again, criminal activity. Uh, clearly criminal criminal activity uh this was you know getting close uh, but it wasn't of the same magnitude uh and uh, s- uh, certainly i think there was less evidence that president reagan uh was aware of what was going on so you think watergate was worse i do then when you were picked by president clinton to be the secretary of defense you were republican he's a democrat why do you think he picked you a good question because I was we had no personal relationship I had shaken his hand uh, maybe three or four times uh, during the course of uh, his uh, first four years and so we didn't know each other personally and I was on my way out I had announced my retirement 
1996, and I had just signed uh, an agreement to have an open office in downtown Washington. And then I got a call from the, from the White House switchboard saying, uh, would I like to come down and, and, uh, and meet with the president and have lunch with him? And I said, of course. Sure. And uh, we had lunch, didn't talk about anything of substance, just a get-together. And then the next time I met him, about three or four days later, we both happened to be in Thailand. I was giving a speech to the U.S. Thai Business Council, and he was there for the the um, birthday, as I recall, of the uh, the president of the country. And he was up on a podium, and I was way in the audience, but he came down afterwards. He had spotted me, and I was wearing a uh, a yellow tie with white elephants. And he came over and he said, I like your tie. It was a Jim Thompson silk tie. Jim Thompson, very famous silk maker in yeah. that region. And he said, but are those Republican elephants or Thai elephants? And I said, well, for your purposes, Mr. President, they're Thai elephants. And it was kind of a joke. And then uh, about three or four days later, uh, both back in Washington and got invited to a second uh, meeting. And that's when we discussed uh, whether or not I'd be interested. And that's how it came about. And I said, I would under certain conditions, and the condition was that if I agreed to serve in his cabinet in that position, that he would never involve me in a political discussion. And um, and I assured him that he would never have to worry about me going back door to my old friends on the Hill, saying, guess what these guys are doing uh, at the Defense Department or the White House. So we had an agreement um, that we're both committed to doing the, the right thing by building a a broader consensus for uh, national security, and it worked out. He was he was great to me, and uh, and uh, just did a great job uh, in listening uh, and following advice, but exercising uh, his power as commander in chief when he didn't agree. So it was it was a wonderful relationship. I remain indebted to him for uh, uh, for having the opportunity opportunity to serve in that capacity. Is nothing like it. Nothing can match it. So it's a highlight of my career. You say that did did he never involve you in a political discussion? I mean, really? Really? Wow! And that was the deal. Uh, in other words, uh, I was going to be able to run the uh, department, and there would be no meeting that I would attend in which there was any kind of political stratagem uh, that was being devised. Um, uh, they can do whatever they wanted in other departments and other budget, but but not uh, with the Defense Department. Hmm. And so, uh, and he kept uh, his word on that. I never attended a single meeting in which there were any uh, politics uh, discussed. Well, I, you know, I just, I mean, I think a lot of people find that pretty remarkable. You know, it's sort of like a, uh, a fish not swimming or something. I'm not sure what. Hmm. Hardest decision you made as Defense Secretary was what? Um, one of the toughest decisions uh, was uh, whether uh, to... Uh, go to war in, uh, in Kosovo, uh, and, and it was a, a difficult decision because of the way in which it had to be carried out. And I felt in the beginning that this was up to the Europeans to finally uh, you know, measure up and do something that's happening in their own backyard. And, of course, uh, they were unwilling or either unable to, uh, to do that until the United States uh, took uh, the lead on it. But it's always difficult when you decide to recommend to the President of the United States that you put young men and women's lives uh, uh, in jeopardy, put them in a line of fire. And uh, fortunately, uh, we didn't lose anybody during that time. And uh, we were successful in carrying out the air campaign. But uh, that's always a, a tough decision. Another decision to go to uh, war um, on a temporary basis, at least, uh, with Saddam Hussein in um, taking out uh, much of his... Uh, 
his weapons um, programs at that time. And that was a three-and-a-half-day air campaign, but was successful. Um, the other one was more difficult. We had one shot to get at bin Laden, uh, and it was a very long shot because we had no bases in the region at that time. So we had no place to launch an attack against bin Laden, assuming we could identify him. But there was one occasion which we did, and the question is, since he moved uh, several times during the course of a of a night, um, and it was never at one place more than a few hours. How do you get a, a, um, a, an opportunity to get him uh, militarily and to kill him mm-hmm. or capture him? But uh, we had just one uh, very remote uh, opportunity, and that required uh, launching a missile, uh, which took uh, quite a while to get to its uh, intended target, which had to pass over uh, Pakistan. And at a time when Pakistan was on edge of um, not going to war, but close to it uh, with India. So that was uh, a challenging time as well. Mm. Uh, and the others, uh, there was a heartache. Uh, the heartache came with uh, USS Cole when that was hit by a, a suicide bomber. In, uh, right. So, uh, but I, I would say that there was never a more exciting, exhilarating, exhausting, and rewarding experience in the B-Sector of Defense. You're working with the, the best and the brightest that we have in this country, and you can't be around our men and women in uniform without being excited. And so I was running on adrenaline. I slept four and a half hours a day and uh, was never fatigued. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, you've had an incredible career. I mean, that's a pretty that's a pretty bold claim to make that that was really the highlight of your career. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's nothing there's nothing compared to it because you when you go out and visit these kids and their children and you go out on an aircraft carrier in the middle of the Indian Ocean and you've got 5,000 men and women on that uh, ship and they range in ages from 18 to, you know, 40 uh, and above for the senior officers, but you see these young people who are doing very important things. Everything is has a life consequence to it, and even the ones who are just manning the cables, the restraining cables for the aircraft coming in, they have to be on the job uh, with uh, with no um, uh, no deflection of attention, uh, and to see them in action, and to see how proud they are and how patriotic they are, boy, that gives you a spinal shiver. It's uh, not matched in most other endeavors. Talking with Bill Cohen, he's the former Secretary of Defense, also the author of Collision, his most recent book, which is a novel. Do you ever have any, I mean, it sounds like you must have some regrets that you didn't do something about bin Laden. I mean, do you ever feel like you could have prevented 9-11? Sure, I have regrets that we missed him. but uh, again, we didn't have we didn't have any access to him. In other words, there were no bases in the region that we could launch uh, an attack against him. So what we had to do is try to find out where he was going to be to identify he's going to be in a specific spot, and then launch a missile from hundreds of miles away to try and hit that spot while he's there. Uh, and we came close, but we missed. And that was the only time that we uh, ever had a sighting of him. So, uh, yeah, I do regret that. When George Bush decided to invade Iraq, did you support that or oppose that? Uh, I had a, a personal opinion, which I uh, felt the way I expressed it was as follows, that 
when I was at the Defense Department, I believe that we had um, Saddam Hussein reasonably well confined. We had no-fly zones in the north, no-fly zones in the south, and I did not feel he posed a significant threat to anyone in the region. And uh, so we had no intention of going into Iraq unless he, for whatever misguided reason, decided he wanted to try and attack um, Saudi Arabia uh, or Israel. And then we had a plan that uh, in place that would have required uh, deploying some 400 to 500,000 troops. But we had no intention of doing that. 9-11 happened. You have a different administration and a different calculation made. I never felt there was any connection between um, Saddam Hussein and 9-11. I, I never saw any evidence of that, and I believe that he did not pose a, a certainly an immediate threat to uh, the United States. They have a different administration, different uh, attitude taken that they felt that, well, long-term, uh, he should be taken out. Um, I think, looking back at it, uh, I think they, even those who advocated, uh, see that there were some miscalculations made about, number one, going in, and number two, going in with a force that was not uh, large enough to contain uh, the, uh, the consequence. Mm-hmm. What do you worry about most on the international stage today? Um, I worry most about, uh, well, several things. I, I worry most about the United States not being sure of what its role uh, is in this grave new world of ours. In other words, we're unsure of what role we play or should play in a world that is marked by more and more turbulence. Uh, I believe that we have to always be sort of forward deployed. We have to be engaged in a major way. And when we retreat from areas, we leave something of a vacuum. Someone or something is going to fill that vacuum. And so uh, that's one thing. I think that we, we are unsure. You have uh, a debate taking place in the Republican Party. Should we be libertarian, come back home, invest in the United States uh, to the exclusion of being... Uh, seriously engaged in foreign affairs well that's one viewpoint that we're overcommitted in uh, in parts of the world um i don't agree with that view i think that whenever we have a presence it means it's reassuring to other countries for the most part that we're committed to their security as well as our own and can it be done in a way that doesn't bankrupt us i think the answer is yes but we have to be more prudent in the decisions we we take to use our military when I was at the Pentagon, for example, I, um, my view was we should be a reluctant sheriff. Uh, we should be the sheriff, but we should be reluctant to commit our troops to engagements which are long-term, uh, not uh, easily uh, identifiable in terms of termination points, and unsure of whether they can be successful. I think we have to avoid those at all costs. So I was very reluctant to commit our troops to battle unless we absolutely had to. And I still think that is the better philosophy than one to simply go in and say, okay, we're, we're going to transplant democracy in your country, whether you're ready for it or not. Um, but we're unsure at this point. You've got people on the left in the Democratic Party who want to come home, uh, sort of like going back, a throwback to what George McGovern was saying in 72, right. come home America. Yep. But you've got Republicans saying the same thing. Now, the issue then is, what about other countries? How do they look at us? Do they look at us as being unsure of our role? I think the answer is yes. Do they look at us as being unable to make decisions? 
and they can look at what's taking place in Congress and saying that too? Uh, do they look at us and saying that we're no longer committed to their security? You're departing the Middle East. You're out of Iraq, at least semi, uh, mostly out of Iraq. You're getting out of Afghanistan. You're not engaged in Ukraine. You're not going into Syria. So they see, and plus, you're more energy independent now, so you don't rely upon our energy as much as you did. And they see us kind of retrenching. And that that does several things. It makes them look to other countries for their own security. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it also uh, emboldens some of our adversaries to say the United States is not going to challenge us, so now's the time for us to take a little more aggressive move uh, on a given uh, area. So uh, there are consequences of that. So I, I think the biggest challenge from our point of view is we have to make sure who we are, uh, what is it we want to do, what is it we have to do, and can we persuade the American people it's in our collective interest to do it? So that's one issue. The second issue is that uh, the world is changing. You know, we're not going to be able to uh, exercise the same influence as we once did. Uh, you have uh, the rise of, uh, of China, a major uh, economic power, will become a major regional and then one day even global power. So how do we interact with China in a way that doesn't put us on a confrontational uh, uh, collision uh, with them? Um, the same thing with Russia. How do we deal with a Russia that has become much more aggressive, much more uh, paranoid, uh, much more uh, uh, convinced that they need to restore parts of the Soviet empire, uh, put it under the Russian flag? How do we deal with these kinds of issues? So I, I think um, all of these geopolitical issues are of great consequence to us. And then I, I, I look at it on a, um, a threat level, the spread of nuclear weapons capability. That has always been one of my major concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, the spread of cyber technology and cyber attacks. That is even more, it's more devastating in, in a way that's less deterrable. Um, and and then there, of course, there are asteroids coming at us, which <laughs> comes back to uh, uh, to the, the the book. And and uh, I wrote I wrote this book, uh, Collision, um, because it's a real threat out there. And most of the astrophysicists say that it's not if an asteroid will hit us; it's when it's going to hit us, and they can't tell you. And if you go back just a couple of years, there was a very small asteroid, some fifty-four feet in diameter. Uh, that um, passed over in uh, Russia. I think it was uh, Shebel Banks uh, in in Russia. Mm -hmm. It's 56 feet. It weighed 7,000 tons, came at us at them at 40,000 miles an hour. And uh, no one had any notice it was coming. Same day, another asteroid about twice the size and weighed 40,000 tons, passed Earth uh, well within the moon's orbit. So uh, there are thousands uh, actually, there are a million asteroids uh, out there, but there are thousands that uh, pose uh, threats all the way from, let's call them city busters, which would be, let's say, one the size of 450 feet from home plate to a deep center field. Mm-hmm. A rock of that size will take out any city, any part of the world. If you get beyond that, if you get into a kilometer or three kilometers, then you're talking about the end of civilization. So the issue is... Can we detect them soon enough, enough years in advance to say, we have a way of deflecting them? If you can't detect them and they're coming at you, then you have a real problem. And so this is uh, basically uh, what 
uh, the novel is about uh, can we detect them and deflect them and what happens now that the private sector is out out there looking to mine the asteroids the u.s government wants to do this as well we have president obama has a plan to put an uh, astronaut on an asteroid by 2025 that's just 10 years from now wow. so if we have to move it into an orbit uh, that makes it accessible to our astronauts or robots and the question I raise in the novel is what if we move it in a way that puts it on a collision pass with, pass, uh, with, uh, with Earth and uh, then I added some intrigue, murder, mystery, international components <laughs> to it mm -hmm. because uh, there is no regulation for the commercial use of space we have an outer space treaty which um, prohibits the use of space for military purposes but uh, we we don't have anything dealing with uh, who can claim an asteroid, move an asteroid, uh, where will they move it, uh, and you you could have a gold rush up there with various uh, private companies also competing with governments, trying to get at asteroids for whatever use, uh, someone for water, uh, others for palladium, titanium, and other minerals. So did you go fail-safe here and, and put your wife in, in uh, harm's way, into the harm's way of the asteroid? Uh, that, that's the sequel. <laughs> uh, yeah, Henry Fonda revisited again. Let me take uh, let me take one call if you don't mind, and sure. I'll let you go here. Let's go to Montpelier. Dave, good morning. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, guest. You know, I'll be so happy. This is a side observation. I'll be so happy when somebody finally drives a stake through this vampire Brzezinski, Kissingerian, real politic worldview. It's not. What's for breakfast? We've been dining out on American exceptionalism for way too long. You know, and I didn't, uh, maybe I came in late and missed it, but I didn't hear your guests say anything about the U.S. as a NATO's encirclement of Russia in direct contravention of what we told Mikhail Gorbachev when the Soviet Union disbanded in the early 90s that we weren't going to do that. And that was the first thing we did. The support for neo-Nazi factions in Ukraine that fly, I mean, if the American public knew that we were actively backing Nazi front groups in the Ukraine, what would the reaction be? I'm not really sure what the reaction would be. I can't okay. do that. But, let me, let me, we're a but you know what? There are a hundred, we are, there's an American military presence in 108 countries around the globe right now. And what the purpose of those are, we don't know. There's right. very little I gotta, oversight. I got to interrupt you there. I gotta give, let me give them some time to answer it. Thanks for your call. American exceptionalism, I think, kind of the point here. Uh, well, the question is, what is the role of the United States? Uh, according to the caller, I suppose we could just come back to uh, good old uh, USA and let the world unfold um, and watch it on CNN or MSNBC or uh, some well, other network. you got to admit, we've done some bad stuff, though, too. Uh, of course. And no one claims that, uh, that we are uh, always pure in thought or deed. But the question is, has the world been safer uh, with us being forward deployed? let's say in Japan, uh, let's say in Korea, uh, let's say in parts of Europe that we have now pretty much reduced our presence there, uh, or in the Persian Gulf region, uh, are we better off that we uh, are there creating some stability? In fact, uh, China has been able to prosper largely because we have been maintaining stability in that region. So is it good that China has prospered? The answer is yes. Is China a potential market for the United States and our um, and our labor force? Answer yes. 
so we have a role to play. The question is, how big should we be? Uh, how can we deploy our forces in a way that uh, is certainly fiscally important, but security, uh, uh, security guarantee? I think if uh, you didn't have, for example, an, an agreement with Japan, Japan could go nuclear uh, within six months if it chose to do so. Is that a good thing? Do you think that that would contribute to uh, stability in the uh, Asia-Pacific region? I don't think so. So having a presence um, and one that is consistent with our own values and with those of the country that we have the presence with, I think that's important. Thank you for your time this morning. And I think the best advice when it comes to asteroids is duck, don't you? <laughs> time to pray. Thanks for your time. Okay, bye-bye. Bill Cohen, the former Secretary of Defense, now a uh, New York Times bestselling author. His most recent book is Collision. As you heard him mention, it kind of focuses on asteroids. Well, it does focus on asteroids, not kind of. That's going to wrap it up for hour number one. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Love to hear from you next hour. We'll check in with our White House crew to begin. We'll get the latest on the prison break. This is FM 96.1 WDEV Warren and AM 550 WDEV Warren. AP Radio.